Hello and welcome to Game Changing with me, Tim Thornton. And me, Chris Sheldon. In this podcast, we chat to various luminaries from the music world who we've met along the way. About those key moments in their careers where the stars aligned and it all started to go right. The route to becoming a rock producer can sometimes be a familiar story. They get a menial job in a recording studio, they progress up the ladder until they're in charge. Billy Bush's journey is different. Now a trusted pair of hands behind successful albums by The Boxer Rebellion, The Naked and Famous, Grizzfolk and the band I play for, Fink, Billy has forged his reputation by being the man who can get his head round the thorniest of logistical challenges in both the live and recorded world, a talent that attracted Billy's most enduring and probably most successful collaborators, Butch Vig and Garbage. Hey, Billy gets on so well with Garbage, he even married one of them. Anyway, eager to find out what makes Billy tick, Chris and I boarded a plane and flew to Los Angeles. I'm joking, of course. We spoke to Billy via the magic of the internet. Hope you enjoy the chat. What I was thinking was that um, there's two big differences between you and uh, the other producers that we've spoken to. And the first one, which will sort of neatly go to, to a little potted history of your your, your career, um, is that you started in the live music world, am I right? Rather than the recorded music world. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I originally started as a musician. And then as a, you know, the more professional side of things started as, as you know, touring as a guitar tech was my first sort of foray into like getting paid to do something musically. And who was that, the first band you, you toured with? The first band I toured with was a band called Danger Danger, which was a late 80s hair metal band out of Long Island, New York. Okay. Excellent. I don't recall their, their oeuvre. Uh, it's, you would if you, if you really dug into the 80s because they were called Danger Danger. The record was called Danger Danger. Nice. And the big hit was called Bang Bang. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. And I, and I know that um, I know that Hole was a band of yours at one point. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I toured with them as well. So you know, okay. Um, long story short, when I was studying music in uh, Denton, Texas, at the University of North Texas, I met a guitar player named Andy Timmons, who's a great, amazing, all-around, just shredding guitar player. And he had gotten a job with um, playing guitar for Danger Danger. So when they went on tour, he was like, "Dude, you know." If you want to make some money, come on tour. So I toured with them, and we toured all over for about a year or so. And then that segued into a bunch of other bands just from, you know, you know how it is when you tour. It's like you see people, and then somebody goes like, oh, shit, that guy's actually really good at what he does. We should hire him, you know? So, like, like I would always end up getting hired by the headliner. Like, whatever band I was working with, I would end up getting hired by the headliner on the next tour. Because oh, it would see how, how I was working. So it'd be like, I constantly like quickly moved up. And um, I just got known to be able to, to deal with really complicated and difficult situations. Mm. So, yeah. So I'd worked with, I toured with suicidal tendencies for quite a few years, dealing with the kind of madness that was that sort of scene. And they were the same, had the same management company as Hull. So when Hull was starting to kind of blow up, and things were getting wildly out of control with them. They called me going like, do you think you can come wrangle this, you know, bizarreness? And I was like, yeah, sure. Right. So, yeah. So I started touring with Hole and toured with them for about a year or so. 
Because I remember when we were doing uh, one of our two albums with you, Fink's two albums that we did with you, and I was playing, you have a, I, I believe it's a Stratocaster. Yeah. I can't remember what color it is, but I, I, I'm i going to go for turquoise. Is that right? I do have a turquoise one, yeah. Seafoam green. Right. I think I was playing that one. And while I was playing, you said to me, I bought this with the bonus that I got from Hole. Close. From the Hole tour. Close. I got that guitar. Um, it's actually a seafoam green one that Alex Perez at Fender made for me. I'd been working with him um, with Courtney's guitar tech, whose name is Chad Zamish. We work with Alex and Fender to create... Uh, Courtney's signature guitar because she had this one guitar called a Mercury that Kurt had bought her. It was handmade by some dude in Austin and she kept throwing it into the crowd during uh, Lollapalooza shows. Right. And because like, you know, she was, you know, in the throes of like dealing with like having Kurt kill himself and all this crazy shit happening with her that she wasn't really thinking about these things. But we were like, dude, at some point you, you know, or Francis is going to want this guitar, not some fucking punter and, and you know, in the middle of nowhere so we tried to find a guitar that we could replace it with and i came up with the idea because i'd worked with fender for years of like hey why don't you guys make a version of this so they did it and as a result of them doing this guitar and me getting her to actually sign off on it and then being able to make it um alex was like dude do you want anything i was like yes i would like a 60s seafoam green relic strat so he made that for me but the guitar i bought with a tour bonus from from hole you can see I have a guitar problem. If you if I walked you around the studio, you'd really see how bad my guitar problem is. <laughs> but uh, I bought a uh, I bought an original '62 Strat that BB King had signed. So it's a Sunburst one. That uh, that was the one that was like it was at the time it was the most expensive thing I'd ever bought. Right. So, That's amazing. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So and the other name I remember, and I may have I, I mentioned this to Chris the other day, but we couldn't find any evidence for it on online. Is uh, Metallica. Did you work with them as well? Metallica. So my Metallica story is interesting in that the, as I was telling you before, like whenever we would tour with somebody or whenever I would tour with somebody, like all of a sudden I'd get a call from the headliner. Like, so Suicidal um, supported Metallica on a bunch of like stadium tours, same management company. And they loved the Metallica guys because Metallica guys are really, or the, the Suicidal guys are really fun to hang out with. And the Metallica guys at the time were really fun to hang out with too, if you know what I mean. So we spent like a good 18 months just constantly just hanging out with the Metallica people. And then I got a call going, Hey, Kurt wants to be your, uh, wants you to be his guitar tech. We fly out to San Francisco to meet Kurt and see if, uh, see how things fit. And I was like, cool. So I flew out there, they hung out, hung out with him for a couple of days. And then I got a call going, cool. You want to uh, be Kirk's guitar tech? And I was like, sure. And at the time I was on tour with garbage and the garbage tour was supposed to only be six weeks. And so this was getting to the end of the six weeks tour. And then they got word that it was getting extended. And this was on the very first record. So, you know, things really hadn't started to happen with garbage. Right. And Shirley, of all people, came up to me and was like, I hear you leaving me. And I was like, oh, oh man. <laughs> and she was like, please don't leave. And I was like, oh, fuck, okay. And at this point, there was like, you know, you know, there was nothing between us whatsoever, you know, but... I did see that at the time I knew what Metallica was going to be. I knew Metallica was going to be, if I took the Metallica gig, I was only going to be Kirk's guitar tech, which is a great gig, but that's the ceiling. That's all, you know, I would never get past that. I'd just be a guitar tech. And I had an instinct at the time that I could really fit in with the garbage crew in a way that would allow me to do more than just be a guitar tech. Already at the time I was doing a lot more with the band, even though we just started 
touring, you know, I could tell like they really needed um, what I could bring to the table technically when it came to like sense and programming and figuring out how to deal with some of the technology that they were wanting to use on tour. And it was right around the, the time when sound tools became pro tools. And Butch was really into the idea of exploring digital recording somehow, you know, and so like the, all these things kind of, you know, came together at a point that made me go like, you know, I think I'm going to bet on the small indie bands from Wisconsin because I feel like there's something like it's going somewhere that's a lot more interesting than I know what my life is going to be if I go here. Mm. I'll end up moving to fucking San Francisco and it would be a great gig. And, you know, coincidentally, the guitar tech from whole uh, chat I was talking about is James's guitar tech and has been for, right, right. I don't know, 12 years or something. And it's a great gig, but it's not what I wanted to do because I didn't want to spend the rest of my life just, you know, working on guitars and dealing with all that kind of stuff. So I was like, I wanted to explore yeah. being in the studio. And, you know, I got the sense that I would get that opportunity if I stayed in the garbage can. Yeah, yeah. So it's like kind of, it's that thing, I suppose, Chris, when we talked to Flood, he was he was once saying he could see a certain path well, that's right. down the production path because he got as far as he could with engineering and he was like, well, do I want to be an engineer for the rest of my life? Yeah. Well, that's or, what he said. He, it, was either, it was either carry on being an engineer with U2 or producing, um, who was it? Erasure. Erasure. That's right. As he said, it's yeah. like you could be the greatest engineer, but you'll just be the engineer, So, which is fine and there's nothing wrong with that. But, totally. you know, he wanted to move on to production. That's exactly kind of how how I felt. I was like, you know, I want to, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Although I, you know, I love touring and I love, you know, the process of of making a live show happen. But I knew at the time, like, I really loved the creation of music. Just going back to being a, a, a musician right. at, at the very very beginning, it's like I like making music and I like the process of it, and I like all the process of you know from trying to figure out how to make something sound interesting to figure out how to make a song work, how to connect to people, how to get performances out of people, you know, every element of of record making I I really love, but I also love like the the process of seeing what happens when it comes out, you know, on tour. So at, at that at that time, obviously when Garbage were, because uh, I'm trying to remember back then and. Butch had already sort of made a name for himself as a producer by that point, hasn't he? He'd done, I mean, Pumpkins had come out and Nirvana had happened and all that stuff. Yeah, so he had actually he'd, he'd actually done a whole bunch of records before um, the the whole sort of chaos of Nevermind. Yeah, yeah. And then once the Pumpkins records took off and once Nevermind took off, he, you know, being a drummer and being a musician himself and a songwriter, like he wanted to take some time off and make some music himself. He had gotten sort of burnt out on the process of making records with other people. So it started as just like a side project, sort of like something fun for him and his buddies to do. And then they realized like, oh, this actually, this is actually kind of cool and interesting and, and we should see where it goes. And I think also a very similar thing was like, he knew at the time, if he stayed on that path, what his, what his life would be. It would just be a constant stream of, you know, how much am I going to get to make this record and the records that are going to be lucrative or the records I don't want to make and the records that aren't lucrative are going to be the ones I do want yeah, to make. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, I think I think he decided like he wanted to, to commit to being in a band for a minute. So was there any, when, when you first um, started uh, teching with Garbage, mm -hmm. was there, did you think at any point I'll, you know, 
I'll be, you know, that the opportunity to work with Butch as an engineer. I mean, had any of that sort of come up or it occurred to you or any of that sort of, or were you? Well, it, it, it occurred to me because I saw, I saw gaps in their skill sets that I knew I could fill. And I saw, and because I'd been a, a part of enough sort of bands starting to take off and realizing like, in order to keep the momentum going, you have to keep, you have to like, you have to keep pushing more and more and more, you know, it's sort of exponentially how much effort, work, you know, things that happen, like, you know, it doesn't organically happen and keep going like this, you know, that's why so many bands like, oh, we have this great first record and then it drops off, right? you know, so... I knew that they had all been around the block enough. You know, Shirley was in her third band. The band, the dudes in the band were in their third band. They'd all been around the block, multiple labels. They'd seen this sort of stuff before, and they knew what it was going to take to get the second record to be as impactful as the first record. And I knew that in order for them to do that, they were going to have to step up their game in, in ways that, you know, um, I don't think even they were aware of at the time. Right. But... I knew that my skill set of being able to, you know, get great guitar sounds, come up with new sounds, um, understand the technology that was coming in like super quick. Like, you know, samplers were changing. Like the first record was done all on analog tape and S1000s. And it was super frustrating for Butch. And then I, I knew that when we got into the world of digital recording, that that was going to open up the possibilities for what he wanted to do and what the rest of the band wanted to do in ways that, even they couldn't really fathom at the time, but I could see it, you know, I could see like where, oh, okay, you want to, it's sort of like watching somebody, um, you know, work on a sculpture and realizing, oh, okay, actually, these are the tools you need. I need to put these tools in your hand and then you'll understand how to finish what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Like I could see what they were trying to do yeah. and understand what what we needed to do to be able to facilitate that in a creative and interesting way. So, you know, it, it even started back when we were on tour and everybody first got their got their first laptops and like not really understanding how to get online back in those days, like, you know, in the AOL sort of dial-up days. And I'd be the guy that they would always call going like, I can't get this to work. And I would always solve it. And then so on the, on the tail end of the garbage tour, the first garbage tour, Butch, you know, took me aside and was like, hey, I want you, because you understand all this stuff, to go research what all the sort of digital recording systems are. And figure out which one's the best one, go buy it. I don't care what it costs, um, figure out how to use it and then bring it to smart and show us how to use it. I was like, wow, okay. That's, that's, that sounds like right up my alley. Did you go for sound tools? Well, that was at the point when I, I had heard that sound tools had switched over to pro tools. And coincidentally, I had reached out. I can't remember how I actually got a hold of somebody, but I got a hold of somebody at digital design at the time who was a huge fan. And they were like, you know, come out to San Francisco. Let me show you what we're working on. It's not quite done yet, but it's. I think you, I think it will serve what you're trying to accomplish. And so it was like, the, you know, the first iteration of, you know, Pro Tools as we know it. You know, it still was new bus chassis and all that sort of old school sort of version. But it, it had translated into a version that seemed like, okay, this doesn't seem so kludgy and difficult to use yeah, yeah, yeah. that it will put people off, you know. So I was like, this looks like this this could actually be something that we could creatively use. So that was, it ended up being like, I tried that one. I tried, God, I tried um, Performer. 
um, opcodes, you know, Studio Vision. Yeah, no, I I remember all those. I, I remember running opcode with uh, Cubase and trying to get the whole thing working, and it was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, all and that, that stuff. And that was the thing too, because I also realized, like, you know, that these guys are guys that, that don't have a lot of patience on like things not working. So you know, having to figure out solutions to that I, that would do what we wanted to do, but be stable, be um repeatable and not get in the way of the creative process where things like i was like okay like opcodes you know studio vision pro i really loved a lot of the stuff it could do but it couldn't do a lot of the editing stuff that pro tools could do in the same sort of way but the way the midi was great was great in it so at one point like i had that going slave to a pro tools machine slave to two you know 24 track machines and oh, oh my, my god, god. there was a, there was that kind of crossover period and uh yeah, it totally. was oh man <laughs> It was so difficult. It was it was a nightmare, and you never knew why it would not work. Yeah. Like w- one moment you'd be like, "Oh, it's working great, flawlessly," and nothing would change. And then the next thing you know, like, why is everything out of sync again? <laughs> oh like, man, no, I know. Nobody touched anything. You know, it's like you know, it's like it was just I don't know. It got to a point where when when I finally got so frustrated with the micro links that I literally took it ripped it out of the machine room, drug it outside to the deck, and then threw it off our balcony into the street so it exploded <laughs> in the street. Because it was just one of those things where like, okay, if it's not working, I'm going to fucking destroy it so we have to replace it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it did get to that point, didn't it, with stuff? And, yeah. And it, it's, it's looking back now and trying to explain to people, you know, I mean, I, I remember when I decided to make the change to just use Pro Tools and it was like, okay, mm. forget the tape thing. And it was... It was just like Nirvana. It was heaven, you know, yeah. just suddenly, all right, yeah, I'm dealing with it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing too. Like, you know, I was I was always trying to figure out like what the best version of things were. And, you know, for us, like tape was always uh, a bit of a sacrifice because like, you know, I know a lot of people really romanticize the sound of tape and it does a thing. But at the time when you're trying to make something be exactly what you put in, like it would always come back and like, oh, the transients aren't quite right. You know, all of a sudden it's a little thicker and that's really clouding up where the guitars are landing now. And like, and so all, we had all these things. And then at the same time, when Pro Tools started to become more stable and usable as a multi-track sort of device and recording mechanism, you know, like all that, like I would get tape in and be like, oh, this tape is fucking terrible. It's like, you know, it's shedding all over the place and it doesn't sound particularly great you know it's like it's fucking like the formulations of it all started to really kind of like go downhill do you know do you know what's what's really funny uh, uh billy as well is that people who actually did work on tape like yourself and like me and you know and half the people that have been in the podcast uh are the ones that if anybody says you know, so hey, would you would you want to go back? I'm like, no, Fuck no. I, I want to do that. And 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 yet, all the young engineers are like, God, it must have been great. I'm like, you have no idea what you don't realize. It was all we had. That's why we worked on it. And as soon as we could not work on it, it was good times. Yeah, it's like everything you know, everything we did was to try to mitigate what was the you know the downside of using it. You know, so it's like, oh fuck, you know. Yeah, like the idea of like like I still get bands that go like, "Hey, can we track the tape?" I'm like, "You're not good enough to track the tape." <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you have to be so good because it's like I'm not gonna window edit your fucking drums. I'm over it. You know, it's like it's like, well, can we just hit tape and dump it in Pro Tools? Yes, yeah, yeah. 
But I was going to say, actually, that the, the second difference between you and everyone else was that you maybe started your recording career in digital as opposed to all these other guys who started in tape. And we have stories like Tim Palmer buying his first Pro Tools rig and yeah. trying to work out how to use it and then shaking his head and going, nah, it's not it's not for me. Yeah, well, what Tim did was he went down to see uh, the Sound Tools guys when it was still Sound Tools. Yeah, They invited him down when he was working in Hollywood can't remember what record he was working on, but he said he went out to try it and he went, yeah, I, I don't think so. And went back to using tape for about another three or four years before, it, you know, he was suddenly, oh, yeah, OK, I get it now. I'm moving on. But at the time he was he was not. I mean, I remember buying my first Pro Tools where he can try to figure it out. And it's just like, you yeah, know, there was no no one really knew there weren't many of them around in studios used to rent them out at incredibly high rates. So you had to kind of. Sink or swim, you know, just buy yeah. it and get involved, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's interesting you say that because, like, you know, I kind of feel like I kind of – I started in the actual engineering side of things and with both things happening because at the time, like, even though I did get the Pro Tools rig, we didn't really trust it. Okay. So we were doing everything to tape, you know? It was like I would – you know, if we got something where it was like, okay, this is kind of difficult. Let's edit these drums or these drum loops. We'd fly it into Pro Tools, and then I would edit it, and then I'd fly it back to tape. So the entire time, like you know, like like version two point you know, we mixed it off a of tape. We had, you know, it was all it was on forty eight tracks of analog. Plus, I had I think twenty four tracks coming out of Pro Tools all when we mixed it. But you know, it's like it was only like, like sort of special effects stuff like that. Like if we were doing vocal comps, we'd fly the vocals in to you know, we track the vocals in Pro Tools, comp them, then fly them back into the tape machine, and then we printed everything to half inch. I mean, even this one of my one of my um, you know quarantine gigs is going through lots of these guys, baking oh, them right. and transferring <laughs> them, right? So, I mean, this one is even from when's this one from? Yeah, two thousand and four. So this is uh, in the podcast style. We should probably explain what we're what we're looking at. <laughs> Billy's holding up a, a half inch tape box. Yeah, yeah, you guys describe it because yeah, like, half inch you know. analog tape. There it is. Well, I actually yeah. haven't seen one of those for yeah. a long time. <laughs> Come to my garage. I've got plenty. <laughs> <laughs> So is that a version 2.0 one? No, that that one actually is for the fourth record from uh, Bleed Like Me. Okay, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because, like, at that time, like, from 95 to 2005, like, the process of how we would finish records changed. Like, you know, during version 2.0, you know, everything was tracked, ended up being... We quickly realized that tracking into Pro Tools was... was really worked for our, our workflow. Um butch didn't really trust it so much and also he couldn't wrap his head around at the time like mixing in pro tools because automation was so rudimentary not like automation wasn't rudimentary on the harrison that we had i mean we had flying faders and that was it nothing else was recallable you know everything else was by hand but he loved how the harrison sounded so you know we ended up mixing everything out of like i said off of analog tape out of pro tools and then mixing it to half inch and we mixed everything to half inch for the first you know, 12 years of the band just because there was no other way of mixing anything. You know, it's like, it's either DAT, you know, at the time, or it was going to be, you know, half inch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't really trust, like at the time, like going into back into Pro Tools was, you know, it was 16 bit, Yeah, you know, it was the black 888s or whatever. And then it turned into the the 888.24s towards the end of version 2.0. But we didn't start printing back into the box until the fourth record. So it's kind of interesting. I'm doing a, a weird sort of test between 
the mixes that we printed in the box in 2004 versus like taking that exact same session and printing it in the box in 2020 and then doing like all the different permutations of this mix like okay now what if i run it through my analog summing system what does that sound like you know and then compare all these things to the half inch just because i have that kind of time right now <laughs> exactly um just mo moving on from from garbage billy i was going to yeah. say that there's a point from a sort of a, an observer where you started doing a whole bunch of other other bands as yeah. a producer um is that because garbage sort of wound up for a while or is that was that a, a, a sort of actual intention on your part like i've got to get some other name names under my belt both both things i mean the yeah, the band took a hiatus in 2005, and Butch went back to work as a producer. And I started working with him on a lot of things as an engineer. And again, I think I saw this sort of thing like, well, you know, I could either stay here, and it's very lucrative being an engineer at this point, you know. In 2005, I was like, you know, people didn't mind paying for studio time, didn't mind paying for engineers. But I also saw that, you know, again, there's a ceiling. I'm going to be Butch's engineer, and that's going to be it. And it's working for somebody like Butch, it's, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, on one hand, you know, the education I got from him and the opportunities I got from working with him have been extraordinary, yes. you know? You know, in fact, like when he first decided that I was going to engineer version 2.0, he was like, I'm going to teach you everything I know about recording and you teach me everything you know about this Pro Tools rig. And, and it's been, you know, it's been an incredible education working with him. And, you know, I love him and he's fantastic, fantastic to work with. But I knew that, like, okay, that's going to be the ceiling, you know. If I want to do anything else, which I did, you know, I wanted to branch off into production and branch off into mixing, I would have to go do that outside of his, the umbrella of him. Yeah. And that's yeah. one of the things that's difficult sometimes when you work with somebody like that is all the everything is attributed to him, sure. you know, and rightfully yeah. so in, in some, in some regards, but it, as you know, it's like, it's never one person, you know, particularly within a band or in a situation like that. It's never just the producer. It's never just the songwriter. It's like, it's a combination of things, it's the alchemy of all the people that are involved in it. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I was like, I have to get out from underneath this, you know, Oh, he's Butch Vig's guy. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of thing. And get, I, I had to go out and do stuff that was completely different from all the other music that we'd worked on simply because I was just being known as that guy, you know, I'm that engineer, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so. So do you have a, a, a record which you think was, which you look back on and think, right, that, that was the sort of time when I, I really got my own identity and my own shit together? Um, no, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, like in carving out a name for myself individually, like the, I would say like, the Naked and Famous track Youngblood was the first one where it started to reach out to people who didn't know who Garbage was or didn't know who Butch was. You know, it was a younger group of A&R people who, you know, were in a different uh, musical sort of sphere than than what we had existed in. So I started to be able to create my own name because of the success of that track to um, branch out and get other opportunities of other things. And that was the, that would be the one track where I was like, okay, that was, that was a lucky break. And that, because, you know, it did really well and created a lot of, um, awareness yeah. that, and it was nothing like anything I'd done before. So it was, it was sort of like the, the jumping off point to start 
producing and mixing other things. I'd done a bunch of other stuff before that, but none of it had really impacted and nobody really cared, you know? Right. So, okay. but that was the first one where all of a sudden, like, you know, then people started like asking, yeah, you know, yeah. for me. And then from that point on, I was like, I always tried to find stuff that was different and unique that I really sort of connected with. Like, like when I got approached by, you know, by Finn about like, hey, let's, you know, can we have a chat about making a record? You know, it's like, I'd love to, you know, I want to do something with Ethan, but I can't, you know, I can't afford him. Right. <laughs> you right. know? <laughs> so I was like, cool, man, if I can be the budget version of Ethan Johns, I am down. <laughs> but it was also interesting because it was like, I'd done other, I'd engineered a bunch of other stuff here in LA that, you know, was really interesting and cool. And was like, it was, it was in the more uh, acoustic and um, organic sort of mode. And I liked where Fink was going in still being very organic and real, but bringing in other elements of things. And I was like, okay, see, this is really interesting and really fascinating. And, and you know, those records are another pair of records which, you know, created an awareness that I'm not just, you know, the indie rock guy or the alternative rock guy or the 90s guitar fucking dude yeah. or whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 definitely. I've also picked up on Grizz Folk. yeah. Which I hadn't heard of before. Yeah, but I I liked it. I played it today, and 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 I, and I yeah, me too. I was listening to that as well. Today. And I kind of think to myself that it's got a kind of Billy Bush sound to it. When I think A B that with Hard Believer, it's kind of there, there are similarities in some in some way. Yeah, I mean I, that was another case where that that band's a real unique um, group of of guys. Like there's three real sort of roots rootsy Americana dudes in it, and then there's two Swedes who are very much the Max Martin sort of like electronic, um, you know, modern production sort of thing. Yeah. They're all super, super talented dudes, super sweet dudes. And that record was one where I got called in to help finish it because they were really struggling with the direction. They were on a major label. They were on Virgin here in the States. And they were Ron Fair's sort of like, he wanted to make them Maroon 5. And they had no interest whatsoever in being Maroon 5. Sure. You know, no disrespect to Maroon 5, but it's, you know, they they wanted to be themselves. And he was all about, like, he wanted to be super pristine. He wanted Chris Lord Algae to mix it. And they spent a fucking shitload of money on this. And then the band was just like, we don't like it. So they called me, being the budget Ethan Johns. <laughs> and they were like, we don't have much money, but can you help us finish this record? And I did. So I was like, I ended up doing like, I can't remember, six or eight songs on that record, reproduced some of the songs that uh, Ron Fair had done with with Chris, and then remixed a few things. And then also produced, I think, six or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. But it was, a, it was an interesting process because it, it was kind of like the first time I'd come across a younger group of musicians who were of like this time frame where all music is available to all people at all times and everybody has got you know influences that run the gamut yeah. you know it's like there is no problem with you being loving the most pop pop music but also you know loving the most organic you know down home rootsy sort of music in the world and jazz and hip-hop and you know you name it metal like they had all these influences yeah. you know like the guitar player um you know, from Grizz Folk, like he could play anything, like like you know, like he could play Swedish death metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and at the same time, like he really understood, like you know, modern pop chord structures. Right. You know, right. 
so he's like it was like an encyclopedic knowledge of music and you know it was that was that was an interesting project of a band where back in the day if they had been on a label that really cared about them and really gave them time and would like let them go out on tour and really figure out what the sound of the band is you know i think they they, they would be in a place where they were you know doing something really extraordinarily unique because i do think that that like what they do is so different but how they can discover what it is that they all really connect with and put that out as the kind of thing where it's like, you know, you can only really do that by being in a, being a band and being committed to being in a band for a long, long period of time. Right, you know? right. And of course, you can't afford to do that anymore. They certainly seem to um, have used uh, Spotify to their their advantage, though, because, I mean, their play counts on Spotify are pretty massive for that. Yeah, album. millions, yeah. 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 yeah, but that's you know that's also the you know the byproduct of the the world that they live in now. It's like you know because there's so many influences in it, and the songs do kind of kind of cover a lot of different territories. That you know they you know they they do fall in a lot of different sort of playlists. Sure, we um just going back to to doing um those two records with you. I mean that mm-hmm. for us we look back on that as a, like a kind of era, a, a total era of think where we did the two LA records. And yeah. you introduced us to so many things about doing these things in LA, like from the community of sort of session people that you had at your fingertips, yeah. you know, you want someone to come and play this, I can get them. And yeah. to, to also right down to the food we ordered, you know, yeah. Um, and it was such a it's such a lovely experience doing those those records, you know, and and then being able to come back to L.A. and play a gig, uh, you know, when we did uh, El Rey yeah. um, on the Hard Believer tour, you know, that, that it was it was so nice. And we, we sort of we've got a different setup now, you know, Finns in Berlin and, and so on. But we do look back on that period. I'm like. Oh, you know, maybe we should just go and do a record like that again. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> you know? there, there is something to be said, like, you know. We live in a, in such a weird time where everybody is so disparate and there's so little money in the music business as it is. Like try like you know trying to convince people to spend money on anything is difficult, you know, because it's like, oh well, I've only got $10,000 to make a record and I need to eat and survive and pay my rent until we go on tour in 3 months. So it's like they need the $10,000 in order to survive. Whereas, you know, back in the day it's like there is something there is a magic I, I do think that there's a magic and i've always said this about when you get musicians in a room and you put them in a room that's that hopefully is also inspiring in itself you know yeah. that's the beauty of la and these studios that still exist thank god that you know you go like there's been magic that's made in this you know, room it's like you know you go to like sunset and you're like well you know van halen one and two were done in this room you know Prince worked in that room, you know. Adele worked in. This it's room. inspiring. It's inspiring for people to to step into that. There's yeah. there's no doubt about it. You know? Yeah, it's like you know Sinatra was here, and you know the Beach Boys were there, and the Beatles were here, and Stones were there, and it's like so. There's a history that I think does make people kind of sit up and like yeah. you know dig in a little bit harder than they do if they're sitting at home in their pajamas like trying to do something. You know, nothing against that. You know, music should be made any number of ways, any any which way. There's no right way. But I do feel like the whole thing about music for me is like the community of it, like the whole sort of communal element of it, of, you know, it should be played in front of people, you know? It's like, yeah, it's great to listen to. You put a a great record on, and 
you know, really what it's doing is transporting you into the place where everybody is when they listen to that record, you know? So I think that when you take that and you, that, that mindset and you put a bunch of musicians in a room and you let them create and be musicians, there's something magic that happens, you know? And that's one of the things like with the, you know, with the Fink records we did that I love, like, you know, when I was first talking about budgets and stuff like that, I'm like, well, we could go do this. If we want, if we want to be economical, what we should do is just go do all the drums and then we'll come over here and we'll do the bass and the guitars and the vocals. And Finn was adamant about like, no, I want to be somewhere for the entire duration. I'm like, Ooh, okay. That's going to, that's going to cost some money. But since then I've also really, really pushed to always, whenever I do work with a band to have everybody there all the time and not track it. Like it. So it's just drums. Yeah. 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 You know, so the drummer gets beat to hell for, you know, the first week and then he doesn't have fuck all to do for the rest of it. And then we, we, we talked about that before, I think, and Tim and I have talked about this when I've, when I've been producing bands myself, I, I, I try to do that always. It's like, I'll do maybe two or three tracks with the drums and then we'll do some bass and guitars and what have you on them. And then we'll go back and do some more drums. The idea to me now of doing like 12 tracks of drums and then 12, you know, tracks of bass, it's so boring for everybody, you know? And then totally. once the drummer's done his 12 tracks, he's like, well, now what do I do? You know? And it's, yeah. it's, it's horrible. I love the idea of just working on the tracks, you know, two or three at a time. And then, yeah. and also if, if something's not happening and you know what it's like, you know, sometimes the singer's not feeling it or the guitar player's not feeling it. It's like, all right, well, let's do some more drums. Let's do something else. You know, it's, yeah. it gives you that, that option. But that's the luxury of, of all being in one place for a yeah. well, that's right. time though, isn't it? You know, and that, and that was amazing as well. Um, getting out of your hometown, yeah. going to one place, right. We're going to be here for two weeks or three. And you can work really quickly. I mean, people... You know, Billy, when when we say to people that we did Hard Believer in 17 days, I think it was, yeah. um, people are like, really? And we're like, well, yeah, but then we didn't do anything else. Yeah. You know, we literally, that was all we did. We got up, walked to the studio, picked up a Starbucks and then just worked. And that was all we did. For- and also it wasn't like it was 17 days or 20 hour days either. It was like, it was pretty civilized, if I recall. You know, it's like oh, 10, yeah. hour, 10 hours tops, probably maybe 12 occasionally but yeah absolutely yeah the yeah. latest night was um yeah it was was just because we we'd had too many donuts probably and just <laughs> moving a little slower yeah yeah carrying on so no it's fantastic um yeah but i mean that's to get back to that though it's like that's that's one thing like when i have the opportunity i mean i like to work on a song a day mm. you know and like try to do it you know get the as much of it done as i possibly can maybe not finish vocals or maybe not everything like all the sprinkles done but you know try to like do a song a day so that way everybody's involved and then the next yeah. and then if you do hit a wall where you're like oh the arrangement's not working this part's not working then it's like you could punt off to another song and go like ah oh, let's do an, let's do the next song and then come yeah. we'll circle back and that way i mean for me it's like if i can keep everybody in the band involved on a daily basis which is weird because like i've i've got some bands who like who don't want to do that they're like i want to get all my stuff done and I'm like, right. yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you do, and you want to go hang out, but that's not to me. That's not going to make the best record, you know. It's no, like, sure, yeah. But, so is that how you? Is that how garbage works? Still, <laughs> do they do they record like a band? No, they work in a completely bizarre way. Like every like every day is a weird sort of like, what what are we gonna do? I don't know. Right. What do you want to do? I don't know. Should we order lunch? I don't know. What do you want to do? <laughs> this one, this record was was kind of conceived in a different way like they wanted to do something different like do the writing differently so steve one of the guitar players in the band 
his in-laws have got uh, like a house in Palm Springs. So the band were like, well, can we just go record there? And I was like, yeah, but I can't take the whole studio there. So it's like, we can't take all the nuts and bolts and every single thing that's in here there and set it up for a couple of weeks of recording. So what I did was I built a really, really minimal recording system for them. And we just set it up in this big like living room in this house. You know, it's on a golf course. It's got a pool. It's gorgeous. And it was like, you know, and they would just kind of sit around and just start jamming which they don't do. They don't really jam. Like most of the times things you would come from like, Oh, I've got this loop idea or this chord progression idea. And this was all sort of like, you know, they kind of get together and then some, somehow something would start happening and it would become this thing. And then Shirley would just write over it. And so we did these really long stream of consciousness sort of songs that were like, you know, 10, 20 minutes long where she would just continue to write while the band continued to vamp on whatever they were working on. And we did this like twice for a total of probably like a month, like two weeks at a time. And then we sort of went away and then um, Duke for the most part and Butch to a certain degree, like went through all these sort of jams and sort of like started to cut them up into an element of some sort of arrangement. And then they sort of just sort of morphed out of that. Like we would get together for a couple of weeks and then start working on something and the range would completely change. Everything would change about it, the tempo, the key, the vocals and everything like that. But all the core of it was started from this whole writing process. Mm. But every, like every time, like every time they come in, it's a completely different, you know, thing. Like, I don't know at any point what's going to happen. Yeah. And has your role because I noticed that you went from engineering and you gradually sort of then you got uh, co-production credit to actually you actually produced one of them, right? Yeah, it's like actually you're named as the yeah as the sole not the sole producer, but like I'm the sole mixer on the last two garbage records, right? So I mean, has that just been like organic? Yeah, or has there been a moment where they've gone right, Billy? This one we think you should no take more of a con- no. I think I think the the way it's just sort of evolved in that you know the the way the ideas flow becomes it just becomes like everybody feels like they can have an idea about any sort of thing so as a result like you know for the for the additional production and the production elements of the last couple records it's been because i've come up with something you know it's like i've either come up with a drum loop or a sound or um you know an effect thing or some arrangement thing or some element of of the production of it where that's that you know I'm involved with it as, you know, as a part of the team. And yes. when it comes to the mixing, it's like, I think Butch has appreciated not having to, you know, really have to do the the heavy lifting of the, of the mixing side of things. Like he, he enjoys the fact that, you know, we, because collectively we get it to a place where it starts to feel and make sense. You know, like I'll do rough mixes as we go. And everything is always working in a place of sort of like, you know, as far complete as we can possibly get it. You know, it's like it's very rarely something that is a complete mess and we don't know what it sounds like. It's like normally like you really know what it's going to sound like. You're you're editing as you go along. Absolutely. Yeah, we're editing, we're mixing, we're curating it as we go along. And therefore, when it comes to to the mix element of it, you know, Butch, you know, I think enjoys not having to completely reset his mind on what it sounds like and instead just can react to what it sounds like when i send them when i send the mixes so like i'll do a mix they'll either come in and listen and have notes or i'll send it off and wait for notes to come back and then you know butch is 
Butch is the one who gets really meticulous about you know certain elements of things, but everybody weighs in on the whole process. But it's you know it's it's funny because like when it comes to credits, like it's really just a collaborative, you know, thing. I noticed um I noticed one thing as well um Billy that um you do uh you tend to do a lot of or you have done anyway a lot of uh just sort of straight engineering gigs it looks like as well so you'll intersperse with doing production and mixing and then just like a regular kind of engineering gig rather than yeah i mean the other two. i've always kind of like delineated the three sort of you know elements of record making as different it's different things in my mind and i use different sides of my brain for all of them right. like i love just doing an engineering gig because it's just i don't have to worry about anything yeah it's just pure creativity yeah you know what i, I mean i do yeah i mean it's because uh, i did one myself last year when i i worked on the rocket man album the the soundtrack for the rocket and i was yeah. just employed as an engineer and i hadn't done it for years actually yeah. and it was a friend of mine who was producing it giles martin he said look i'm recording it's, it's all live bands playing you know piano bass drums guitar and i was like yeah okay and i hadn't really thought about it and i hadn't done it for somebody else for years but you know what? I had a blast, man. It was the most fun because oh. all your job is to make it sound great, and then you sit around and it's and it's brilliant. It's really fun. Yeah. No, I got to, I got lucky in that I got called to work on the last Paul McCartney record. Oh yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Great, yeah. great, yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, and it was you know from a friend of mine, Greg Kirsten, who I've worked with in the past, and he's like an old you know really great friend of me and Cheryl's. And fucking monster musician and monster producer, like he's he's just it's it's great seeing his career just absolutely explode. But he called me up one day and was like, "Hey, um, I'm making this record. You want to come engineer? It's this bass player from uh, from Liverpool. I think he's pretty good." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay." And uh, so yeah, so like you know, he'd call me in because he's he has his own team of engineers that he uses on a daily basis because he's constantly always working but he, he occasionally calls me in for these sessions that you know are outside of their sort of comfort zone and this was going to be one where it was like it's a really big session it's, he wants to track live he's got his band there he's got everything like you know there's harpsichords there's harmoniums you know there's uprights there's tack pianos there's grand pianos there's acoustics he's like you don't know what he's going to do in any given moment so everything has to be ready to go everything has to sound good and you have to be ready to record anything at any given time, judging from where, you know, Paul goes in the room. You know, it's like, oh, shit, he's over there. Okay, get ready to record that, you know? Right. And it was, it was just, it, again, just so much fun because it's just, you get to experiment with the whole process of like, oh, shit, okay. Like, nobody's judging you on, on anything other than does it sound cool? Yeah, you yeah, know? sure. How many tracks was it? For? I ended up engineering. And again, it's like one of those things where they did it over so many, you know, dates. So I got so I did the dates here that were here at uh, Henson Studios, the big recording dates that were here at Henson Studio. There were two big blocks of it. And then they would go back to Paul's studio in the UK and work on stuff. And then they would come back and do, you know, some pickup dates here and then go back. And so it was done over a, over a course of a year. But the bulk of the recording, I think I did like eight or ten songs on that record. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, and again, like everything changes. Like, so we go record the basics and then they go back and rework on stuff and tweak stuff and change stuff and yeah, whatever yeah. but it, how was abe laboreal jr oh i love abe i've done i've done quite a few sessions with abe over the year he's amazing you know he is so amazing he just like you just pointed mic in his direction and, and it just sounds good yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> doesn't matter what the mic is just like yeah he's amazing live as well we went to see uh, paul mccartney play in liverpool um 
couple of uh, Christmases ago. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it was fantastic. But I mean, Abe Labor, he's so amazing to watch live because he's always doing, even when he's not drumming, he's like doing something. He's he's singing or yeah. playing percussion or, or just even dancing. And he's you know? and, he, and again, like everybody in his band too, is just, they're just super lovely people, you know? Yeah. Well, they've been they've been together a while now. I mean, this must be the longest running band he's ever it had. It is. Yeah. Yeah. He was saying that during the time. I was like, hey, my band's been together longer than the Beatles. Sure. Wow, that's cool. That's really good. Yeah. With. When, and was he all right himself? Did you get Amazing. a good impression from him? Yeah, Shirley was like, you know, man, you're just like love struck with him. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's, I mean, he's, he's amazing. I mean, aside from the fact like, you know, you don't get a chance to work with people like that very often. But he, he's just an amazing cat. Like his energy is amazing. At the time he was 72 and he would only work from 12 till 6. Like he would show up, bang on the on the dot at twelve o'clock, and roll out at six, and it was amazing how much shit we got accomplished in those six hours, because he was just so focused, so talented, so quick. He's a badass drummer himself. Well, what was it? What was his famous quote? Yeah. Wasn't it when Ringo was voted the greatest drummer in the world in some poll? He goes, "He's not even the greatest drummer in the Beatles." <laughs> that was <laughs> no, that's classic. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, well, that's great. Well, that's that's amazing. That what yeah. a what a what a cool thing. I was I was um, listening to some some outtakes from was it uh, the Abbey Road album where they're doing the ballad of John and Yoko and it's just Paul playing drums uh, on the stuff and he's a great drummer man. I mean he really fantastic. yeah. I was like, is there anything this guy can't do? <laughs> you know, he was playing congas like he was playing congas and I was like, fucking hell, Chris. You should say why you uh, you you're being a bit. Uh modest about why you were listening to the the abbey oh, well all it was was just we were just mixing the outtakes and it was just giles rang me up and just said look just mix the outtakes but we the reason we were doing it was because it was for the b-side stuff but it was the um we wanted to keep as much of the chat that there would there was happening between the takes that oh, was the point and so so, so cool. this so it's yeah so there was loads of stuff so listening to to the four of them talking uh on the floor of Abbey Road Two, whatever it was, yeah. and it was it was fifty years ago. That's what's incredible, and they they sound so youthful, and oh. you know, and they're chatting amongst themselves, going, "I don't know, you know what's you know," and, and Paul's going, well, "What are you saying there?" And they're talking about come together. I think it is, and and right. John's going, "Well, it is what it is, man." You know, sort of fuck off. I like it, <laughs> and he's like, "All right, whatever." And it, it's, whatever. and occasionally yeah. they'll you can go, "What do you think, George?" And they'd be like, "I think it's great, lads." You know, sort of thing. It's so it's so fantastic to listen to. Oh. It was a real. Oh, that's amazing. Actually. I mean, that's I mean that says everything about like where you want to be, you know, at at that point in your life. You know, it's like, you know, for me watching Paul play bass at seventy two years old and watching the enthusiasm of which he attacked it, like standing up playing it like he's a nineteen year old. You know, with as much love as like he like this is my first recording date ever. I'm fucking so excited, and I'm like, he's made more records than I will ever. And make. He's, st- he's still you know? into it, and he's got this much enthusiasm. He's got this much excitement about it, and I'm like, that is uh, that is a place to be, you know. If you're going to be making music, to have that kind of love and, and enthusiasm for something is fucking yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Um, guys, I was I was going to say, should we should we do the level forty two question and then and then and then wrap up? Sure. We haven't really followed the pattern as usual, Billy. We've just like chatted, which is great. But no, it's been awesome. But we do have this um, we do have this silly question that we ask people, sure. which is. Um, do you know much about Level Forty Two, the band? Uh, not much. Okay. Well, the the reason why we mention them is because in the early eighties, um, they were a kind of touring 
jazz funk band. They were doing okay. And they got to a certain point where I think they were, you know, they were playing, you know, nice theatre tours and so on. And they said to each other, right, lads, if this is going to continue, we've got to hit pay dirt. So we've got to deliberately write some hit singles. So we've got to go out with the express intention from the writing process to the production process. Everything is going to be geared towards having some whopping great smashes. And they did that and they succeeded. And then they went up to arena level and it all all went really well. And so the, the level 42 question is, do you believe... I know it worked for them, but do you believe in such an approach? Well, I, I think I think the thing is that it kind of depends on whether it's really honest from the from the person who's you know making it. You know, I do think like they're obviously like living in L.A. It's like this is the hotbed of where people write hit songs every day. You know, it's like there's a whole process. There's a whole, there's a whole you know teams and mechanisms in place to crank out hit songs. Yeah, and the the problem to me is like so much of it is just is sounds the same it's all very derivative it's all very similar i think that the things the you know getting a song that fits into those playlists isn't as difficult as it used to be but it's not necessarily going to create a career like level 42 by doing that they ended up creating a career they may have been you know, the, their albatross may be these songs which maybe they don't like so much. Yes. And if you look at the history of, you know, a number of different artists over the years, like a lot of them have done that, you know, like had a song where it's like, fuck, I really don't want to have to do this song, but it's my hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I think that to me, you know, for most musicians to go out there and try to create a hit and inherently creates a mindset of like, I need to be derivative of what's happening now. And the problem is by the time it's done, it comes out, now it's going to be old and it's derivative and it's not honest and it's not truthful anymore. So you you run the risk of, of that when you're in that sort of mindset of like, I need to create a hit. I think the more, I think the, the, the way to approach it is to like go, you know, is what I'm saying universal? Does it, can, can, how do I, how do I make what I want to say connect to as many people as humanly possible? And that's, I think, where you you can actually maybe end up with a hit that's really honest and truthful, you know, where it's like you're you're going, okay, I need to make this not only musically but lyrically and melodically something that people can understand. So I can't make it so obtuse musically or sonically that people won't want to listen to it, but I need to make something that is going to have a universal theme and connectivity that is going to make it be something that everybody can understand. And a lot of times people dumb down when they do that. But if you don't dumb down, I think you have the opportunity to create something of, of incredible worth and meaning, you know. But again, to me also, like I, I say this to everybody I work with, like, well, what the fuck is a hit? Sure. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's like, what, what, when, you, when you're telling me it's like you need to have a hit, what does that mean? Oh, it needs to get played on the radio. Well, what radio? <laughs> yeah, true. You know, it's like, like look, at, look, at, look at what hip hop does. Like hip hop can be wildly abstract completely out there like look at kendrick lamar's records it's like his records are are extremely musically deep and don't necessarily have hooks you know so they don't fall into the the idea of like a hit song but yet 
he's fucking streamed like crazy, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So is that what you want to do? You can make the kind of, you can make any music you want to if you can just connect to people. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, but yeah, so I think like, you know, the idea of like sitting down to write hit songs in this day and age, I don't think exists because I think there's just too, there's just too much shit out there of people doing the same exact shit that is, you know, inherently kind of boring and inherently sort of like fast food. You know, it's like, you know, it's like this pop singer singing these songs about going out and having fun and how hot my friends are and, <laughs> you know, and just rinse and repeat. You know, it's, it's amazing. Like when you really look at like, you know, like what the top hundred songs are on Spotify or on Apple Music or whatever, and you start like, if you just quickly flick between them all, you're like, they all like, oh, right now we're all starting with an acoustic steel string guitar. Oh no, actually now it's a nylon string guitar. Oh no, actually now it's a piano. Oh no, it's actually an electric piano. You know, and of course now everybody's like, I want to make a record like Billie Eilish. I want everything to be really quiet. <laughs> I want to sing really silent. But you know, that's not honest to who you are. I, I was I was talking about that with a uh, with somebody the other day because uh, her brother, um, who won a uh, Grammy for the production of the record, and that's fine, and that's you know, it, it's the record is is cool and everything. But there was this whole thing about, you know, it's so great and they made it in his bedroom. And I was thinking, so is the next step then that people are going to say, right, um, I want to work with so-and-so, but we've got to work in his bedroom. You know, it's just like it's it's super important that if we're going to make a record like Billy Eilish, we have to do it in a bedroom. You know, it's, it's we have to buy that house. Yeah. And work in <laughs> do you know their what I mean? Bedroom. It's just like, yeah well, yeah, well, what kind of what kind of bed did he have? OK, let's get that, you know. Actually, you know what? I found out the Bed Bath & Beyond duvet is the secret. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Not the one from exactly. Target. Bed Bath & Beyond. And it has to be a certain, <laughs> you know. And that's the thing. is like, you know, I think that the, uh, you know, he's an incredibly talented producer. And she's obviously an incredibly gifted singer. And yeah, they yeah, have been lucky that they've been able to um, be so homeschooled. So they've they've been able to study music. Again, you know, in a way that most people don't get to, you know, so they've been able to spend eight hours a day just studying music and playing and practicing and trying and, and working on their craft. And it's shown in this record, you know, and that's great. And hopefully, you know, they'll be able to continue and there won't be another case of, you know, here's an act that really shouldn't have gotten really big when she was 17 because yeah, now yeah, she's 25 yeah. and it's got nowhere to go, you know? Yes. Right. Yeah, 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 but, yeah. I agree. But I think that, you know, you know, to me, it's like, I've always said this too, it's like, there's an infinite number of ways of making records. And, you know, CeeLo Green did it with that huge hit that he did with Danger Mouse, right? And it's mm -hmm. like, th mm -hmm. that that vocal was recorded in a bedroom. The, uh, you know, the Naked and Famous track, Youngblood, was recorded in a bedroom, you know? It's like, it's fine. You can record anything anywhere and make it sound cool, make it sound interesting, if it's honest, and that's the thing about the record. It's like, it's honest and it's like, it, it feels, you understand where she's coming from. So that's, and that's where, the, that's where to me where the hit comes from. It's like, you know, it's like, are you able to, to say something in a way that everybody in the world is going to be like, oh yeah, you're speaking to me. Yeah. You know? She seems to have her head screwed on anyway, because she, uh, right down to the things she said about her appearance and so on as well. They, they seem to come from quite a kind of sensible uh, and also quite, um, nicely stubborn place as well yeah I, you know when she says things like well I'm, i don't want to get judged on my appearance yeah so i'm gonna wear this and it doesn't matter yeah i i think you know i hope you know it's always difficult though it's like i mean i can't even imagine what it must be like to be 17 and be going through that kind of ride you know or 18 now 
So it's like, I mean, it's it was enough of a mindfuck for the people I was around who were in their 30s, right. you know, or 40s when massive success hit. Like when Shirley was 30 was when she was on the cover of like every magazine when you walk through the airport, sure. you know? And that was like, that's a lot for a 30-year-old to process who's already been through three bands, let alone a 17-year-old where it's like you can't leave the house without everybody knowing who you are, you know? So what happens invariably with people like this, you know, it's like somebody's going to decide that they're no longer the cool thing. And when they decide to do that and they start taking pot shots at her, you know, where does that go, you know? You know, and where the expectations of like, well, what happens to the next record? What happens, you know, you know, when people invariably move on, you know, it's like, or do they? Where do they come up with a, a second record, which is fantastic? I hope they do. But, you know, I always get concerned when it's when it's when it's really young people like that, because, you know, history has shown us that it doesn't really work out very often for them. Yeah, that's know? true. From Justin Bieber to, you know you name it go down the list you know the thing to the the successful ones always seem to change yeah totally they seem to think right i've done that so i'm not going to do it again yeah like arctic monkeys you know they they sort of say right we've done we've made that album now it's time to move on rather than remaking the same record yeah yeah i i hope so i hope so because as as you said billy i mean at, at 17 or 18 or whatever she is now as well as being judged on your music she's judged on everything she does yeah, whether yeah. she yeah. dates someone or whatever you know um but I, yeah i sort of i sort of agree with you tim i i it'll be be nice to, i mean obviously the songwriting is really interesting yeah the parent her and her brother work really well together clearly yeah but it'll be interesting to see them do something different you know or different instruments or something else it'll be i think that would be cool yeah i thought i thought that the uh what they did with the bond theme was was a good sort of like oh, okay cool that's yeah. not I agree. That showed some, you know, some depth and something like, okay, cool. You're doing something a little bit different from what I would have expected you have done. So, yeah. And it felt pretty legit. So, and that's coming from someone who's worked on a Bond theme. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Billy, we should, maybe we should stop, but it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, of course. No, it was really lovely to chat with you guys. It was nice to finally meet you, Chris. Yeah, and you, Billy. Really nice to meet you, man. It was great. Yeah. Really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, if I do get a chance to come over to L.A. again anytime soon, I'll, I'll come and say hi. Sounds good. And if I get over there anytime soon? Oh, please. Yeah, it would be great. Yeah. It would be great. But, you know, who knows? Maybe, we'll, maybe we're never going to go anywhere ever again. I don't know. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> All right, guys. Billy Bush there. Hope you enjoyed that. How nice it was to speak to him again. Um, I'd like to thank Billy for his time and um, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. It was a bit strange doing it in isolation, but uh, nonetheless, just really nice to see Billy again and uh, believe for a few brief moments that we were both in Los Angeles. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. Hope you're all right wherever you are and don't forget to like, subscribe and leave us a rating or review if you get the time. Uh, It helps other people find the show. See you next time.